0: Chapter 15 of Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands by Mary Seacole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. In the last three chapters, I have attempted, without any consideration of dates, to give my readers some idea of my life in the Crimea. I am fully aware that I have jumbled up events strangely, talking in the same page, and even sentence of events which occurred at different times, but I have three excuses to offer for my unhistorical inexactness. In the first place, my memory is far from trustworthy, and I kept no written diary. In the second place, the reader must have had more than enough of journals and chronicles of Crimean life, and I am the only historian of Spring Hill. And in the third place, unless I am allowed to tell the story of my life in my own way, I cannot tell it at all. I shall now endeavour to describe my out-of-door life as much as possible, and write of those great events in the field of which I was a humble witness. But I shall continue to speak from my own experience simply, and if the reader should be surprised at my leaving any memorable action of the army unnoticed, he may be sure that it is because I was mixing medicines or making good things in the kitchen of the British Hotel, and first heard the particulars of it, perhaps, from the newspapers which came from home my readers must know, too, that they were much more familiar with the history of the camp at their own firesides than we who lived in it. Just as a spectator seeing one of the battles from a hill, as I did the Chennai'ah, knows more about it than the combatant in the valley below, who only thinks of the enemy whom it is his immediate duty to repel. So you, through the valuable aid of the cleverest man in the whole camp, read in the Times columns the details of that great campaign while we, the actors in it, had enough to do to discharge our own duties well, and rarely concerned ourselves in what seemed of such importance to you. And so, very often, a desperate skirmish or hard-fought action, the news of which created so much sensation in England, was but little regarded at Spring Hill. My first experience of battle was pleasant enough. Before we had been long at Spring Hill. Omar Pasha got something for his Turks to do, and one fine morning they were marched away towards the Russian outposts on the road to Badar. I accompanied them on horseback and enjoyed the sight amazingly. English and French cavalry preceded the Turkish infantry over the plain, yet full of memorials of the terrible light cavalry charge a few months before, and while one detachment of the Turks made a reconnaissance to the right of the Chenaya, another pushed their way up the hill towards Kamara, driving in the Russian outposts, after what seemed but a slight resistance. It was very pretty to see them advance, and to watch how, every now and then, little clouds of white smoke puffed up from behind bushes and the crests of hills, and were answered by similar puffs from the long line of busy skirmishers that preceded the main body. This was my first experience of actual battle and I felt that strange excitement which I do not remember on future occasions, coupled with an earnest longing to see more of warfare and to share in its hazards. It was not long before my wish was gratified. I do not know much of the second bombardment of Sebastopol in the month of April, although I was as assiduous as I could be in my attendance at Cathcart's Hill. I could judge of its severity by the long trains of wounded which passed the British Hotel. I had a stretcher laid near the door, and very often a poor fellow was laid upon it, out-wearied by the terrible conveyance from the front. After this unsuccessful bombardment, it seemed to us that there was a sudden lull in the progress of the siege, and other things began to interest us. There were several arrivals to talk over. Miss Nightingale came to supervise the balaclava hospitals, and before long she had practical experience of Crimean fever. After her came the Duke of Newcastle, and the great High Priest of the Mysteries of Cookery, Monsieur Alexis Soyer. He was often at Spring Hill, with the most smiling of faces, and in the most gorgeous of irregular uniforms, and never failed to praise my soups and dainties. I always flattered myself that I was his match, and with our West Indian dishes could of course beat him hollow, and more than once I challenged him to a trial of skill but the gallant Frenchman only shrugged his shoulders, and disclaimed my challenge with many flourishes of his jewelled hands, declaring that Madame proposed a contest where victory would cost him his reputation for gallantry, and be more disastrous than defeat. And all because I was a woman, forsooth! What nonsense to talk like that, when I was doing the work of half a dozen men! Then he would laugh, and declare that, when our campaigns were over, we would render rivalry impossible by combining to open the first restaurant in Europe. There was always fun in the store when the good-natured Frenchman was there. One dark, tempestuous night I was knocked up by the arrival of other visitors. These were the first regiment of Sardinian grenadiers, who, benighted on their way to the position assigned them, remained at Spring Hill until the morning. We soon turned out our staff, and lighted up the store, and entertained the officers as well as we could inside, while the soldiers bivouacked in the yards around. Not a single thing was stolen or disturbed that night, although they had many opportunities. We all admired and liked the Sardinians. They were honest, well-disciplined fellows, and I wish there had been no worse men or soldiers in the Crimea. As the season advanced, many visitors came to the Crimea from all parts of the world, and many of them were glad to make Spring Hill their headquarters we should have been better off if some of them had spared us this compliment. A Captain Sinclair, for instance—who could doubt any one with such a name—stayed some time with us, had the best of everything, and paid us most honourably with one bill upon his agents, while we cashed another to provide him with money for his homeward route. He was an accomplished fellow, and I really liked him. But, unfortunately for us, he was a swindler. I saw much of another visitor to the camp in the Crimea, an old acquaintance of mine with whom I had had many a hard bout in past times—the cholera. There were many cases in the hospital of the Land Transport Corps opposite, and I prescribed for many others personally. The rakia sold in too many of the stores in Balaclava and Kadakoy was most pernicious, and although the authorities forbade the sutlers to sell it, under heavy penalties, it found its way into the camp in large quantities. During May, and while preparations were being made for the third great bombardment of the ill-fated city, summer broke beautifully, and the weather, chequered occasionally by fitful intervals of cold and rain, made us all cheerful. You would scarcely have believed that the happy, good-humoured and jocular visitors to the British Hotel were the same men who had a few weeks before ridden gloomily through the muddy road to its door. It was a period of relaxation, and they all enjoyed it. Amusement was the order of the day. Races, dog-hunts, cricket-matches, and dinner-parties were eagerly indulged in, and in all I could be of use to provide the good cheer which was so essential a part of these entertainments. And when the warm weather came in all its intensity, and I took to manufacturing cooling beverages for my friends and customers, my store was always full. To please all was somewhat difficult, and occasionally some of them were scarcely so polite as they should have been to a perplexed hostess, who could scarcely be expected to remember that Lieutenant A had bespoken his sangary an instant before Captain B and his friends had ordered their claret cup. In anticipation of the hot weather, I had laid in a large stock of raspberry vinegar, which, properly managed, helps to make a pleasant drink, and there was a great demand for sangary, claret, and cider cups the cups being battered pewter pots Would you like reader to know my recipe for the favourite claret cup? It is simple enough Claret Water Lemon-peel Sugar Nutmeg and ice Yes ice, but not often and not for long, for the eager officers soon made an end of it Sometimes there were dinner parties at Spring Hill but more of these hereafter At one of the earliest, when the Times correspondent was to be present, I rode down to Kadikoy, bought some calico, and cut it up into table-napkins. They all laughed very heartily, and thought perhaps of a few weeks previously, when every available piece of linen in the camp would have been snapped up for pocket handkerchiefs. But the reader must not forget that all this time, although there might be only a few short and sullen roars of the great guns by day, few nights passed without some fighting in the trenches and very often the news of the morning would be that one or other of those I knew had fallen. These tidings often saddened me, and when I awoke in the night and heard the thunder of the guns fiercer than usual, I have quite dreaded the dawn which might usher in bad news. The deaths in the trenches touched me deeply, perhaps for this reason. It was very usual, when a young officer was ordered into the trenches, for him to ride down to Spring-Hill to dine or to obtain something more than his ordinary fare, to brighten his weary hours in those fearful ditches. They seldom failed on these occasions to shake me by the hand at parting, and sometimes would say, You see, Mrs. Seacole, I can't say good-bye to the dear ones at home, so I'll bid you good-bye for them. Perhaps you'll see them some day, and if the Russians should knock me over, Mother, just tell them I thought of them all, will you?" and although all this might be said in a light-hearted manner, it was rather solemn. I felt it to be so, for I never failed—although who was I that I should preach—to say something about God's providence and relying upon it, and they were very good. No army of parsons could be much better than my sons. They would listen very gravely, and shake me by the hand again, while I felt that there was nothing in the world I would not do for them. Then very often the men would say, I'm going in with my master to-night, Mrs. Seacole. Come and look after him if he's hit." And so often as this happened, I would pass the night restlessly, awaiting with anxiety the morning, and yet dreading to hear the news it held in store for me. I used to think it was like having a large family of children ill with fever, and dreading to hear which one had passed away in the night. And as often as the bad news came, I thought it my duty to ride up to the hut of the sufferer and do my woman's work. But I felt it deeply. How could it be otherwise? There was one poor boy in the artillery with blue eyes and light golden hair whom I nursed through a long and weary sickness born with all a man's spirit and whom I grew to love like a fond old-fashioned mother. I thought if ever angels watched over any life they would shelter his but one day, but a short time after he had left his sick-bed he was struck down on his battery, working like a young hero. It was a long time before I could banish from my mind the thought of him as I saw him last—the yellow hair, stiff and stained with his life-blood, and the blue eyes closed in the sleep of death. Of course I saw him buried, as I did poor H. V., my old Jamaica friend, whose kind face was so familiar to me of old. Another good friend I mourned bitterly, Captain B. of the Coldstreams, a great cricketer He had been with me on the previous evening, had seemed dull, but had supped at my store, and on the following morning a brother officer told me he was shot dead while setting his pickets, which made me ill and unfit for work for the whole day (mind you a day was a long time to give to sorrow in the Crimea) I could give many similar instances; But why should I sadden myself or my readers? Others have described the horrors of those fatal trenches, but their real history has never been written, and perhaps it is as well that so harrowing a tale should be left in oblivion. Such anecdotes as the following were very current in the camp, but I have no means of answering for its truth. Two sergeants met in the trenches, who had been schoolmates in their youth. Years had passed since they set out for the battle of life by different roads and now they met again under the fire of a common enemy With one impulse they started forward to exchange the hearty handshake and the mutual greetings and while their hands were still clasped a chance shot killed both End of chapter fifteen